This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With Rebecca Ford. Hi. And with David Camfield. Hello. On this week's episode, we're going to talk about the round of cancellations around award season events and what it will mean for Oscar campaigns. We're going to talk about the Best Picture campaign for Spider-Man, No Way Home, and where that might go. We'll talk about Don't Look Up, the hot topic of Christmas break Twitter, and look ahead at the SAG Award nominations, which are coming out next week. And the episode will end with a conversation between our colleague Julie Miller and Murray Bartlett, the star of HBO's The White Lotus. So let's start with the wave of event cancellations that happened before the break. Rebecca, you and I talked about it uh, briefly when we hopped on to talk about the Oscar shortlist. Um, there have there were, there were more since we recorded to the point that I had to like hop on with an extra note that the Governor's Awards had been added to the list. Um, and at this point, um, David and Rebecca, for you guys in L.A., like there's nothing on the calendar, right? Like it's everyone's staying home, at least when it comes to big events like this. Yeah, there are none. <laughs> <laughs> How does it feel? I mean, it's it's weird and depressing, obviously, to be back in this phase of the pandemic. But awards wise, like, what do you think people are going to do from this point on to get their movies noticed? Well, it's interesting because I was talking to um, a couple awards reps yesterday and one of them pointed out what the value of those events is. And I had never really heard someone put this into words, but basically when you're in those rooms, you can tell which films are simply respected and which films are beloved by the way those audiences react, right? So mm. like Parasite, every room you were in, the audience would just go crazy for it, you know, when it would win or, or be mentioned. And that's the kind of sort of um, passion that gets captured in a room and then you realize, okay, this film has something special behind it, you know, where other films are just sort of respected, you know, oh, you know, and they get sort of a polite applause. So I always was able to notice that, but this was the first time a rep had sort of explained that to me in words. And I thought that was a really smart um, observation of what will sort of be lost this month. The, the AFI awards for me are the best example of that. I remember Parasite, whole cast being there a few years ago. They didn't even technically win one of the top 10 because they weren't eligible, but they won one of their special awards. And I remember getting there early and everybody wanted to talk to the Parasite cast. And I mean, mm -hmm. like Leonardo DiCaprio was there and it was a really starry season. Renee mm -hmm. Zellweger was there. Brad Pitt was there. They all wanted to talk to them. And that was the first time. And I remember actually like writing a column out of that week, just being like, I think this can win Best Picture because you see in the moment the people who vote for the Oscars, the movie that they are obsessing over. And um, we didn't have that last year, obviously. Perhaps luckily we had a pretty clear front runner that stayed that way the whole way through. Um, but this is a year where I think that would have been a really, this would have been a telling week, the Critics' Choice Awards and the AFI Awards and just seeing how the momentum in the room felt, who was getting the applause, like Rebecca said, um, because I don't think we have a clear best picture leader right now, or even in most of the acting categories are pretty fluid. So I think we're just losing some sense of <laughs> who's winning these awards this year. I have a theory about best picture that developed over the holiday. Um, okay. Well, uh, my friend and our colleague, uh, Dan Daddario, the TV critic at Variety, one of the TV critics there, he went to go see Don't Look Up in theaters at the Paris Theater in New York City and yeah. texted me and some friends and said, that movie's winning Best Picture, <laughs> based mm. on how the audience reacted to it. 
Uh, I have, over the course of the holiday, I watched it with my family. I have started to agree with him. And I think that not having in-person things now, a lot of stuff that did just under the wire of Omicron have big public screening industry events like being the Ricardos, like Don't Look Up, will benefit from that. Like, that'll kind of seal them off. And also you have Don't Look Up massively available on Netflix. Anyone can watch it at any time. And it seems to be playing well. Um, and so I don't know. I'm just wondering if the lack of in-person events right now, what that means as an advantage for some films that did kind of got in, they had like their big events or some of their big events right before um, versus smaller movies that were maybe planning on, you know, a, a successive series of events um, starting in the new year. Yeah, because it's not last year, you know, where, where Netflix didn't win Best Picture. It was a uh, it was Searchlight that won, um, but they didn't. They had time to plan it and plan it like a strategy, knowing it would all be virtual. Like this kind of like halfway through interruption makes it so that Netflix has that advantage just by being everywhere. Like you were saying, Richard, like the the nomad land method, I think probably wouldn't work in this case. Um, you know, I was thinking about West Side Story because it also had a big premiere. You know, we had that first week in December where all these movies were suddenly debuting, and West Side Story was so warmly received. But it's not not available in your house the way that Don't Look Up is. And I think you might be right, Richard, that that's a real advantage. Um, so while we're talking about Don't Look Up, Richard, um, I also finally watched it over the holidays after it was the only movie that anyone in my family asked me about, um, which I mm-hmm. is not a not a traditional Oscar bellwether, but at least tells me what real people actually care about. And anytime that I did open Twitter over the break, um, which I shouldn't have done because I should have just been living my life, um, people <laughs> were just arguing over Don't Look Up all the time. Um, yeah. And I had, a, I had a hard time figuring out the contours of this debate. And Richard, maybe you can explain this better to me as I, I believe the rap is that you as a film critic don't care about climate change and would actually happily watch the world burn. So long as you don't have to see this movie again, is that is that the general idea of the debate? Well, yeah, I'm looking at I have a little coal furnace that I use to power my computer and my recording stuff. So, yeah, mm-hmm, I, I'm mm-hmm. actually kind of pro climate change and, yeah. and fossil fuels and all that. Um, yeah, no, the, <laughs> the, the sort of line of thinking that emerged uh, when the movie was premiering on Netflix from a little bit from Adam McKay, who wrote and directed the film, but mostly from David Sirota, who is a um, former, uh, he worked on the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2020, I believe, or maybe 2016. Um, uh, he's an author, professor, uh, and he consulted on the film. He has, like, I think, a story credit or something. Mm-hmm. Um, he went a little bit um, wild on Twitter, uh, uh, <laughs> just basically accusing uh, any detractors of the film, but most notably critics from um, larger media outlets of being at best, passively complicit in um, the big media's narrative about climate change, which is to say they don't cover it enough or, or the right way. Um, they're, you know, beholden to corporations uh, versus uh, their fellow man or their planet or whatever, um, which is a pretty insidious thing to imply about people who I, you know, I know a lot of film critics, I myself am one, uh, who work in good faith and I think are almost always, maybe with one exception I can think of, um, politically aligned with what the film is trying to say about this urgent crisis, but are just saying that the film doesn't say it in a good or productive way. Um, I think the movie is better than I maybe thought when I first saw it. Like, I watched it again with my family, because like yours, Katie, that was the only thing that they could, that they really were curious about. And I I appreciated it more the second time, but I still see a lot of flaws. I think that the the central metaphor is a problem. And that's really what the bad reviews were saying. Not that, oh, the media is criticized in the movie, therefore we hate it, which is really what kind of Sirota was saying. And then going further into suggesting that um, film critics are respond or crystal ball actually kind of said this that film critics are complicit in or worked to help create the climate crisis which is a pretty uh off the you know like that's a that's a pretty wild thing to say uh, i caught a tweet from mike sure who the creator of parks and recreation and various other tv shows who as far as i know is not involved in don't look up at all but tweeted somewhere in the chaos of this climate change fueled 100 mile per hour fire wind a copy of the arts section is burning to ash and it contains a two and a half star review for don't look up that says it's a quote a little on the nose. Um, and that was the first thing I saw. I was like, okay, now I kind of see what, what everyone's fighting yeah. about. I, you know, and I'll, I'll let you, the rest of you guys talk, but I, <laughs> I, I, I do want to say that there had been a line of, uh, from, from people who support the film vaguely sort of in the, in the realm of that critics didn't like it because it was too on the nose or it was too blunt and we couldn't be confronted with this hard truth. 
And my response to that is, the film is a fucking allegory. It's not actually about <laughs> climate change. How can an allegory be blunt? That is a crazy thing to say about this movie. It is not blunt. If it was blunt, it would be about climate change directly, like the day after tomorrow. You know, like mm. so. I I don't I won't, I won't listen to that. That that is a silly thing to say and a complete misreading of like how to read any text. Uh, well, David and Rebecca, we uh, we aren't critics, so therefore are immune from being accused of profiting off of climate change. Um, but do you guys, I guess more broadly, do we feel, how do you feel like this conversation is affecting the overall conversation around this movie, not just among, uh, I think, righteously pissed off film critics? I think, I mean, I, I don't know that it's changed that much from how I felt before the break. You know, I, I said, I think on, on this podcast that it's going to be a really strong Oscar contender. And I, I believe that's true, that the Academy has proven that they love Adam McKay movies, which this stripe of Adam McKay movie, I should say, which many don't like, um, but they do work for them. I think it's a really strong across-the-board contender. They don't really care about these controversies. <laughs> Green Book won Best Picture not very long ago, and that was <laughs> a Twitter talking point from beginning to end, uh, and I don't think it really affected its standing. Uh, I think sometimes... In terms of who's actually voting for these, we can overblow, you know, how they're playing out in terms of like a Twitter discourse. But um, they vote for what they like, and I think they're going to like this movie. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I think. I mean, the to me, the only sort of side effect of this kind of discourse is it keeps this movie in the conversation. Yeah, yeah, in yes. a, a much more prevalent way. Definitely. Um, I'm always a little turned off by. And I don't know if this is specifically, I don't think in this case it's specifically for campaigning. I do think Adam McKay and obviously Leo really, you know, believe in this message. But this this whole thing of this movie is important because of its message being sort of part of the awards campaign, like almost every film kind of creates a message to be part of its awards campaign like that. And obviously climate change is very, very important. But, uh, you know, to me, that always just makes it feel a little icky to me as part of the awards um, messaging. But yes, I agree with David that I think the film has a very, very strong chance for many nominations. Um, I'm not on the Best Picture winner boat, but, um, you know, I've been proven wrong many times. <laughs> yeah, well, one, one thing I would caution against its, its Best Picture chances is that in the era of the preferential ballot, consensus mm -hmm. tends to win the day. And for all that, there was a lot of hand-wringing about Green Book. You know, it, it neared 80% on Rotten Tomatoes, and it, it had a sort of general likability that worked for most of the Academy. Don't Look Up is rotten, <laughs> technically mm -hmm. speaking. Uh, it's, it's much more polarizing than any Best Picture winner we've seen in a really, really long time. And so that would be definitely a break with what we've seen from how uh, the new voting system tends to work. Um, so that, that would prevent me from predicting it to win right now but stranger things have happened so uh that's a, a really yeah. good point david about the preferential ballot like you're, you're right obviously that that this is not a consensus pick um i have spoken to at least one award-winning actor who said quote that they fucking hated it so <laughs> um yeah uh but i think another thing you know kind of what you were talking about rebecca about you know is that in terms of campaign strategy i i, I fully you know, accept and believe that the Academy is not paying attention to, you know, Christmas time Twitter wars. Like, and I think that that's fair. They shouldn't. No one should, actually. Um, but that the movie, because it has this central metaphor, allegory, whatever, and there, you know, people can say, well, I get it. You know, I'm on the side of getting it. Yeah. And then you see how the movie is being defended by the people who worked on it. It, it does create a certain sort of tribalism that, you know, that that I think can work for a movie's um, profile in in the in the race, you know, like, oh, that's like a year either that that person or or not, you know, and, and I think that 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 can help define the film's campaign in some weird way. But David, you're, you know, right in saying that, like, but that sort of outlier, fiercely defended movie, but maybe not widely loved movie isn't really something that crossed the finish line because um, that's just not how the voting works. I also wonder about the international appeal of this movie. And maybe Netflix has data that says it's like the most watched movie in every country. Um, but it's so 
American in so much of its concerns. And we talk all the time about how the Academy is getting more and more broadly international. Like Green Book, like you said, like it's a obviously a specific story, but like has kind of universal themes in it. And this one is so like our current poison discourse that, you know, if you're a director living in Hungary, you're just like, oh, leave it. Let, <laughs> let them deal with it. I don't want it. I don't want to think about this movie anymore. Thomas Vinterberg is not voting for Don't Look Up is what you're saying. <laughs> and his vote counts twice, weirdly enough, we're in the, in the Academy. Um, I mean, the obvious question this leads to, though, is like, if we don't think this is winning, what is winning Best Picture? Like, I, I keep thinking we're going to talk about this in specifically, but uh, as I was saying to David earlier, I feel less clear on it now than I was before the break, which I'm very confused by uh, at this stage in the race. Are you guys in the same in the same place? I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Why are we confused? Who wants to explain uh, where things stand? Rebecca, why are you confused? I think it's kind of what we were talking about in the beginning. I was sort of stalling on this conversation until we got to be at a bunch of events in January. <laughs> yeah, because exactly. <laughs> I feel like I every year, I except for last year, I go around those rooms and say, what do you like? What's the biggest threat to your film? You know, and I remember being in a room with someone from... Uh, who was not involved with Parasite. And I was like, I think that's your biggest competition. And they tried to deny it, but I could tell in their face, they were like, yeah, that's our biggest competition. And so not being in those rooms really seems to hinder my ability to make these predictions. I think every week I've, I'm like, it's definitely this film. And then I switch, you know, it's, it's just the whole sort of pace of our season is just totally uh, messed up now. I was just going to ask both of you, David and Rebecca, like, because, you know, our L.A. people, do you think there's a movie that really needed this season? A lot of these films have played at festivals. They've had their sort of first initial moment. But which contender do you think, if any, will really suffer because of this lack of public events right now? I had one really specifically in mind, and that's West Side Story. Um, mm. It didn't get the Power of the Dog level festival blowout or, or something that Belfast also got. Um, it doesn't have that just scale of something like Don't Look Up. It didn't do that well at the box office. It was such a late breaker that just to sort of take its temperature, I was really curious to see, say, at the AFI Awards, how <laughs> the applause would be when its turn came up or something like that, because... It's a really well-liked movie that it's hard to gauge just how much passion there would be for it, given it's standing with the box office and things like that. So that's one that I was really, I'm really frustrated to see isn't going to get that. And we won't, we don't have a better idea of just how strong of a contender it is. I think we kind of have a sense of movies like Power of the Dog and Belfast. They've already gotten to have so many events. And that's why if you look at most predictions charts, those are the two that are still being predicted the most frequently because they've had their big steady, their big rollouts. They've had a ton of in-person screenings. They've yeah. had tastemaker things hosted by celebrities and Academy members. And, and we know that for very different reasons, these are two movies that are going to do well, at least on nominations day. Um, and so those are the two that, you know, just by default, I would have to think are, are out front. Um, but beyond that, 
those movies that didn't have that earlier opportunity are now, I think, in a disadvantage. I was also thinking about being the Ricardos and specifically Nicole Kidman, because um, I think last month we started talking about how she was looking like a real Best Actress winning threat. Jersey has an Oscar, but she, you know, even for the detractors of the movie, her performance really seemed to stand out. And she was one of the people who was going to be honored at the Palm Springs Film Festival Gala, which was supposed to happen this Thursday and was canceled entirely. I mean, there's a ton of people at that. Like being honored at that is not a sign of something. But that seemed like a great place for her to give a speech and to be funny and charming, which she always is, and maybe really build ahead of steam from there. Yeah, I agree. And now the Best Actress race feels really confusing, <laughs> as it has for a long while now. And I don't know, I guess the SAG Award nominations coming next week is kind of our next benchmark for getting some clarity. But in terms of like seeing someone in a room giving a speech, we got a long, a long time to wait. Well, there is the Golden Globes press conference on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we should say, like, by the time you hear this, we might have more clarity. But as we uh, discuss this, Rebecca, you got in touch with the Globes yesterday and got uh, no information about what they have planned, right? Yeah, they said something is coming, but I I think we all we all know that they're not going to have you know talent there. So we it, knew that even before. Omicron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it won't it won't give us any speeches that um you know we want to hear. So I I assume it's some sort of press release sort of situation, but we should know probably by the time this airs what exactly it's going to look like. Do you think there's a silver lining for anyone in all of this shutdown? Like, is there a movie that people have more time to catch up on screeners. Like, I, I wonder about The Lost Daughter, which has premiered on Netflix finally and was getting its share of Twitter conversation. Um, less insane than Don't Look Up, as far as I could tell. It had a festival run and now people are talking about it. Like, does it get to benefit from this at all? Or does another movie get a bump? I was, I was going to say to Richard's point, um, The Lost Daughter and Don't Look Up had a really nice, clear holiday break lane to generate a lot of discussion, get a lot of eyeballs. And at least by people who matter, I think we're, we're largely well-liked. Um, so they both really benefited particularly. And then I wonder about foreign language contenders like Drive My Car has had such an impressive run with Critics Awards. Mm -hmm. Rare is the film that wins New York and Los Angeles Best Picture prizes and doesn't get a Best Picture nomination. Granted, a movie this out far of, you know, what that conversation looked like a month ago would not, it's a different case. But, you know, I wonder if, if it's a movie that people will make more of an effort to catch up on without all that noise happening around them. So it could help some of those specialty players as well. Mm -hmm. Or I guess them and anyone else who's based in another country who wouldn't be able to make it to get to these events in L.A., um, Right. Who then not have the advantage of virtual platforms, even if virtual campaigning is like no one's idea of a good time at this point. Yeah. I, I, I mean, this is such, I think, an outlier at this point. But um, another film that I watched with my family over Christmas was Come On, Come On. And that plays really well on a screener. And yeah. um, mm -hmm. it went over very well in my house. Um, I think we were all weeping at the end, <laughs> like, and I'd seen it already. Um, and I think similarly, you know, The Lost Daughter, where you know, the subject matter might f seem a little alienating. Oh, what is it really about? You know, maybe it feels too literary or something. I don't know. But like, who in the Academy, who 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 cares about this stuff, votes for SAG Awards, whatever, isn't going to be like, oh, I need, I mean, I, I can't, I'm not going to watch Maggie Gyllenhaal's film. Of course they are, you know? Yeah, and then they yeah. have the Olivia Coleman appeal and the Ed Harris appeal and the Dakota Johnson appeal. And I think that once that that, that that initial hurdle of interest is crossed pretty easily, then there's a lot in that movie for people to grab onto. Um, and so I think that The Lost Daughter is definitely one of those movies that could benefit from, um, weirdly, from all this shutdown stuff um, because it had a great Telluride run. And, you know, it's been at festivals. It, it's had its sort of public moments. It may be not enough, but some at least. It also has some of the most vivid scenes of a parent trying to get work done with their kids around that have ever been captured on film. And uh, a lot of people sure. are going to be relating to that uh, in the coming weeks. So um, Empathizing with their nannies. And, you know. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone has time to watch this movie in mid-child care, uh, they may find a lot to relate to. Uh, well, we should also talk about Spider-Man um, in terms of movies that could get a bump right now. Uh, it's the biggest hit in the country. I, I assume it still is. It's like one of the very few unmitigated bright spots in the box office. And it's getting a Best Picture campaign. The FYC ads are out there. Um, I'm not sure anyone can tell quite how serious it is. If it's more of like, a, yes, we will do this campaign because it's the right thing to do by this movie. Or if Disney has real hopes there. I have not seen Spider-Man, so I can't weigh in on whether or not it's worthy. But does anyone feel like it's possible for it to to try something here 
Well, I mean, it's single-handedly saving the theatrical model, right? Like, <laughs> Which is you know. not nothing. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, it's not. It, it look that movie does not have the sort of grand vision quality of Black Panther, which did get a Best Picture nomination. You know, Black mm-hmm. Panther was a sort of like rare event uh, in, yeah. in that world of, of franchise stuff. Um, but you know, the box. It, it's a solid enough movie, I think. You know, and it does. Spoiler alert at this point weeks later uh you know happily bring in spider-man properties past and 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 so it's a real triumph of you know managing actor schedules and getting studio executives from rival studios to agree on things like so maybe that's the kind of thing that when you put it when you put that at fyc ad it really inspires people like a a triumph of scheduling (laughs) isn't it incredible what the ceo of disney and the ceo of sony did together (laughs) but you know producers are the ones who get best picture so maybe maybe there's something there I would not be surprised if it lands, say, in the PGA Top 10, to exactly that point. I mean, yeah. we've seen over the years a big box office breakthrough kind of start to generate this kind of momentum. I remember the first Quiet Place landed on the PGA 10. Uh, Avengers Endgame got a similar kind of campaign. It didn't go very far. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it happens every so often. It doesn't usually translate to an Oscar nomination for Best Picture. And I, again, think... Sometimes the Academy is a little bit generalized and they're a little bit finic- more finicky about this stuff than we give them credit for. So I, I still think it's pretty unlikely. But yeah, I'm, I was on deadline and I saw a bunch of ads there. So <laughs> I was like, okay, it's happening. And it, it was pretty well received and that, that helps it too. So it's it, it, because of where we are with theaters and what it's done, I, I, think, I don't think you can rule it out. It's not it's a kind of unprecedented situation, but I, it's just not a movie that would generally be nominated for Best Picture. I think it's a, a very steep uphill road for it to get a picture nomination. But, um, you know, I do think Feige is sort of brick by brick putting superhero movies, Marvel movies in the minds of voters so that in yeah. five years, you know, they are taken more seriously when it comes to awards. Uh, hmm. You know, That's I, a great point. I, I think maybe this is just... A stepping stone for him to to sort of get these films um, considered, or even like a Wandavision. I mean, it's all sort of every year now. There there is something he's talking about. Is this should be taken more seriously than you're taking it, and and eventually that's going to become a lot more normalized. Well, yeah. Another spoiler alert. I'm just wondering if because Andrew Garfield is so charming in Spider Man No Way Home if that helps his tick tick boom campaign at all you know yeah. i mean i think yeah. that maybe he didn't need that much help but like he he's now in this hugest movie of the past 3 years i believe it's the highest grossing movie uh, since 2019 uh, you know that i he's just kind of in a lot of people's consciousnesses right now but you know Tammy Faye too um so i i just i wonder uh, for him if if that helped for the other movie um, yeah, I mean, we were all in a meeting uh, a couple weeks ago that happened like the day or two after Spider-Man had first screened and Andrew Garfield's name came up and everyone was just like, oh, my God. Yeah, like the 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 love for Andrew Garfield had just reignited in this profound way. And I can I can see that happening on a on a wider scale. So let's talk about the SAG Awards. We mentioned their nominations are coming out next week. We'll talk about them on next week's episode um, and we'll have some formal predictions up. I I do think it'll give us some clarity on all these acting races we're talking about and probably see a good number of familiar names like Will Smith, Kristen Stewart, Nicole Kidman, etc. Maybe we can go around, uh, start with David, anything you're especially eager to see happen or not happen um, when these nominations come out next week? Um, There's always one ensemble nominee that is not in the best picture conversation, like we think it is, it suddenly gets thrust into it. Um, so I'm wondering if a movie like The Harder They Fall with Netflix, which has a cast alone that I think a lot of people will vote for, or then on the other side a little bit, something like Coda, um, which could really prove it's a really strong player, uh, could get into that ensemble five and and prove themselves in a way that... Um, you know, they've been a little bit, both have been underestimated in different ways. Harder They Fall is not at all in the conversation. And CODIS, I think, considered a lower tier Best Picture nominee right now. And those are two that have, in a different way, really broad appeal for a group like SAG. So those are those are two movies I'm looking to see if they can break through in a big way. Rebecca, how about you? Yeah, I think CODA was, was the one I was going to mention as well. I would, I would really be excited if that could could land a ensemble nomination. And then the other one I was kind of wondering about is Nightmare Alley. I mean, just because its cast is just full of such um, 
respected actors. And it's also, I think, very much sort of on the bubble. And this could really give it a boost if if it got that ensemble nom. Richard, mm. what are you excited to see or not see? What are you rooting against? <laughs> uh, don't look up. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not rooting. I, I'm not rooting against not look up because I think that the actors are for the most part good. Uh, you know, um, and I think it'll definitely be in there. It's quite an ensemble. Um, yeah, I'm I'm not really. I don't know. I I I think that this is an obvious answer, but like, I hope that all the sexy young street gangs of West Side Story get to be, you know, like included in that party. And, you know, I, I think that would be a good thing for that movie. Um, I think it would be interesting to see if the Dune ensemble is is rated as like, um, you know, that movie has a lot of spectacle. Um, the performances are less spoken about, but like people like Rebecca Ferguson are great in it. So um, mm-hmm. I, th- I have a feeling that the, the Academy will embrace big studio stuff as a way of like, you know, showing industry strength but i wonder what what, how sag will 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 fall on that because um there are a lot of smaller but much more actory movies that um could maybe spoil the fun for the big studio stuff well this is a uh maybe recency bias we just talked about the lost daughter but like that movie has a great ensemble and olivia coleman is a real Mm -hmm. strong acting contender from that and i would very much expect her to see her show up in best actress but like maybe that pops up in there i think masses campaign is kind of petered out a little bit because it's so small but like maybe the lost daughter is the step up in terms of size from that as a as a small movie to to get in there and Paul Mescal has promised to wear short gym shorts to every awards show that he's. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the greatest so unfair advantage he has. You have to pray yeah. it's not over Zoom, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's also always a, it's also always a good you know good indication of a front runner if they can get into the ensemble five. You know, with the exception of something like Nomadland, which would never have been nominated for best ensemble. It's pretty rare for a best picture winner to not make that. So if mm-hmm. Belfast or Power of the Dog, which have, you know, slightly smaller cast, but certainly, you know, lots of potential Oscar nominees within them, don't make that five, that'll be a red flag for those campaigns for sure. Or King Richard is another one. Yeah. I'm also keeping an eye on House of Gucci, um, which has a big cast doing a whole lot. Um, and again, a strong actress contender in Lady Gaga. But, um, you know, that could pop up there. And then all of a sudden we'll be talking about its best picture chances in a way we haven't been haven't been recently. Yeah. To that point, this is also a test of I, I am always a little bit frustrated by those kinds of first very curated uh, guild screenings that less, let's say, critically acclaimed movies have done, like House of Gucci or Being the Ricardos. Uh, and they're usually packed with SAG members. Um, and they're, you know, always very effusive reactions at the end. Um, so, you know, this is where those movies would hit if they are to hit. So I'm, I'm, I'm watching for that. Uh, and then one other movie I really wanted to bring up for SAG is Licorice Pizza. Um, mm-hmm. I think in some areas, it's a movie that's being underestimated a little bit in the Best Picture race because of you know, I've spoken to some voters and they just absolutely love this movie. And I think it hits a really particular Hollywood, L.A. chord. And if it can win, it would I think it would show up here because it has such a it's so packed with big names who admittedly only pop up briefly. But um, it, it has a lot of that particular appeal. This is how we start the momentum for Bradley Cooper's Best Supporting Actor nomination for that movie, and, uh, yeah, which I want one to desperately. Look out for too. <laughs> It would be a miracle if he showed up, but I would be ecstatic uh, in supporting actor. Um, I, I wonder, though, if it, would that mean the whole Heim family gets included in the ensemble? Are they in enough of the movie? <laughs> Are they on a solo title card? Are they on a solo a... title card? <laughs> I think would that Heim be impressive parents... the first time an entire family? <laughs> <laughs> I think the uh, parents are share a title card, if I remember correctly. So uh, they might. But I think each individual sister um, might be included, which is wonderful. The tragedy would be if being the Ricardos makes it through, only four of those actors would be nominated for Best Ensemble. Um, the main four. Tony Hale, L.A. Shockett, all those people are on group title cards, so they would not be included in that nomination. It's just so cr- I mean, the the way that the SAG determines who gets the nomination or not, like, obviously, you have to draw a line somewhere, but it does feel like every year something makes us slam our heads against a wall in terms of who gets eligible. So maybe that'll be it. Yeah. They should have just done in the solo title cards so they could get a SAG <laughs> nomination and probably a win. I don't, that was silly it, it of them. It might 
must be some kind of thing that agents negotiate intensely. Yeah, we should have like an anonymous agent come on someday and explain all this to us. It, <laughs> it's like how verse. they really negotiate hard for, you know, with blank and blank, yes. you know, to get that and mm-hmm. at the end of the credits. So that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, my my favorite um, title card and or my favorite credit in the entire year, which like with Judith Light and Briley Whitford as Stephen Sondheim um, <laughs> from Tick Tick Boom. It's, yeah. it's really good. Um, well, we should talk about TV too, because um, we're going to hear in a little bit from our colleague Julie Miller talking to Murray Bartlett, who I think is a really strong contender from the White Lotus. I realized today that there is no ensemble category for limited series or miniseries, which is nuts because you get so many of the best ensemble in that specific category. Um, So it'll have to be individual performers from The White Lotus and um, other shows showing up there. Um, But yeah, I mean, SAG's going to be really different from the Emmys. It's a lot different eligibility. Any shows you guys are eager to see show up? Squid Game. (laughs) It's going to happen. I'm so excited. I think that's such an... uh, interesting shift in in what gets nominated at these this event and and yeah i do think it's going to happen so squid game a a drama series by the Mm -hmm. by the sag definition and netflix is going for it so uh, yeah yeah and and you know there was no show that was more talked about than that one this year so it's definitely deserving i didn't realize squid game was set up as not a limited series Oh yeah, they're already talking about like yeah. season three. They're, oh, okay. they're 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 not giving up on that one yet. Um, yeah, David, you wrote a great piece that ran over the break about Squid Game and how they're going for it. Um, and yeah, you're you're pretty confident it's going to work out. Oh yeah, I mean they flew the whole cast out here for for SAG meet and greets. The director was like the biggest celebrity in LA that week. He was he was like very overwhelmed by the amount of agents and industry people who wanted to meet him. Uh, it, yeah, they they did a full court guild press uh, for that show, and it's really a strong challenger to Succession. I think for the even for that win, just because it was so widely watched and it's kind of, you know, it has that kind of parasite appeal when parasite won ensemble in a similar way of you would never think it because none of these actors were known uh, to most of these voters, if not all of them um, beforehand, but they have fallen in love with them. So I, I think it's a really interesting contender there. And then I just, I just binged yellow jackets over the break and I'm fully obsessed with it. So mm-hmm. I would yeah, love I to, I'd love to see it crack the five. Uh, Cause that's all that is going to have a second season as well. That's not limited. Yep. It's so it's funny how hard it is to know. I mean, also, like, Big Little Lies, like, change it up on us. So there's mm-hmm. there's no logic to these rules. Um, yeah, there's so many shows that we haven't gotten to talk about for Emmys yet. Like, Only Murders in the Building is something I'd be really excited to get yeah. to talk more about. I mean, Mayor of Easttown is still going to be around, mm-hmm. crazily enough. White Lotus, as I mentioned before, um, I've been wondering about Station Eleven, which is the other uh, December show that people seem to be talking about a lot. So hopefully it's, it feels exciting in a way that sometimes TV awards start to feel like they drag on forever. Um, but we've got got new titles in the mix here. I do feel like, at least in drama, all these shows are going up against Succession, which yeah may be hard to beat. So we can't you know ignore um, that that big winner. So uh, that's also you know worth keeping in mind. A year ago, the people, or was it two years ago? I don't remember anymore. But people were very surprised when Jennifer Aniston won a SAG for The Morning Show. And I'm seeing it rated as The Morning Show pretty highly on the, some variety SAG predictions anyway. But like that thing is dead, right? Like like people really load <laughs> yeah, the second season. Yeah, that surprises season, so. me. I, I, I would be surprised. You never know. The thing is they yeah. don't do supporting categories. So mm-hmm. uh, say in that TV drama actress field, like... Does I, I would imagine Sarah Snook gets nominated there opposite, say, Jennifer Aniston. But even could someone like Jay Smith Cameron get in? Because that has in the past happened where when SAG loves a show, they just fill the field. Like mm-hmm. Julia Garner and Laura Linney were nominated for Ozark opposite each other a few years ago. So that, that'll be something to look for, too. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork. And this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.
Okay, well, this uh, sad conversation leads us directly into Julie Miller's conversation with Murray Bartlett, who was among the many standouts from The White Lotus, uh, playing Armand, the hotel manager. Um, So let's listen to that conversation. Well, I'm so excited to speak with you. You had one of the most amazing performances this year, and you got to do some of the most fun things that I feel like any TV character got to do, just in terms of living out that unhinged roller coaster and kind of letting into all of your wildest, I guess, vices. Um, I, I couldn't believe when I spoke to the casting director, Meredith Tucker, that she had no idea what your character's fate would be when she cast you. Do you remember how much you were told about the character? I didn't know that she didn't know anything. That's so fascinating. Yeah, I knew nothing. I, I had just the, the scenes that I was auditioning with. I didn't have the first script yet. But, I mean, I had a couple of scenes that were very kind of comprehensive and I had some big speeches in it. So uh, you got a real sense of what an amazing character um, that Armand is. Um, and also I'm just like a huge fan of Mike White. So I, I was sold before, <laughs> before I read it, to be honest, but also like, it's just, it's the, I mean, the whole show I think is so beautifully written and that character is so amazingly written. So it was, yeah, it, uh, hooked me from the first words. In your first conversations with Mike, what kind of references did he give you for Armand? Did he refer you to other characters? What was he kind of using to describe that personality? No, interestingly, we didn't really talk a lot about the character ever, really. Like, we were just, it was sort of just on the fly um, playing playing with stuff. And, I mean, talking about things as they came up, as we were um, shooting the show, but there wasn't a lot of talk beforehand. I mean, that's partly because of COVID. Like, we, we were a long way away and everybody was kind of managing all that kind of craziness. Um, but the one thing that we did talk about was wanting to keep Armand tethered to some reality and not let him kind of completely be a sort of a caricature or something that didn't feel somehow real, which which is what I was really focused on in the in the audition is I was like, oh, this is an amazing character. But, I mean, in, in my own sort of sensibility, I guess, but also in the spirit of White, Mike White, like these are real characters, you know, and, and it's interesting, you know, you see people in life and you're like, oh, my God, if you put that character on film, you'd never believe it because there's a lot of characters in real life that are larger than life, you know, so, but but you have to find those moments where you kind of anchor them in, in reality. Otherwise, they just do feel like um, over the top and, and, and not real. So that was that was one thing that he spoke about. Well, that was one thing that he spoke about responding to in my audition, um, which was a, a great compliment for me. Uh, and also what we, you know, we kept kind of, that was sort of our touchstone throughout when, especially when we were doing all the crazy shit that, <laughs> that I'm on got to do. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you tether him to reality? Do you, I read you have a little bit of a background in hospitality. Were you drawing on those own experiences? I sort of based him loosely on someone that I have met um, in some ways. I mean, that's sort of the wrong way to say that because the character was beautifully written. So there, there was really there wasn't a ton to embellish. It was really specifically written and, and written very in a very detailed way that, you know, there wasn't a lot. I, maybe that's why we didn't talk about the character that much because it was, a lot of it was there, you know. But I did have very strong, a, a particular very strong, uh, one very strong reference point and also my own experience in hospitality and have friends who work in hospitality or in that kind of situation where you're handling, you know, um, obnoxious people. <laughs> or just, you know, just handling people in a kind of a hospitality sort of um, scenario where people just, you know, we turn into monsters, we can, you know, we have this sort of expectations and um, sort of feel like we're... We, we deserve all sorts of things, otherwise we lose our shit, you know, so. 
Well, you shot out of out of order. How did you possibly keep track of one Armand's like patience level, tolerance level, like where he is in terms of breaking point, but also towards the end of the episodes when he's starting to use all these different drugs? How were you choreographing and keeping track? I mean, I pretty much like drew a map <laughs> because you know, it was during COVID, we were shooting, we had a very tight shooting schedule and we were shooting completely out of order. Um, and we were shooting in this resort in Hawaii that was closed for, we had the run of it for the first, you know, month and a half. And then it opened up at uh, sort of a month and a half or so in. And we were, so we were shooting a lot of the common areas of the hotel, um, so that when people arrived, you know, real guests at the hotel, we could just shoot in the rooms. And a lot of my scenes are in the common areas of the the motel, of the, um, the motel, of the, the five-star resort. <laughs> so a lot of my stuff was up front in the shooting schedule and we were shooting, you know, sometimes from almost all of the episodes in a day. So... I, you know, I really relied on Mike, but I really did have to map it out, particularly with the drug taking, because, you know, like I'm taking uppers and then downers and like, you know, I wanted to kind of really make sure that I was on track with that stuff. So it was, it was actually fun. Like it was a little daunting in the beginning when we started shooting. I was like, oh my God, we're just like jumping all over the place as you do normally anyway, but particularly in this situation. Um, but then it became kind of a fun puzzle, you know, to map it out and try and kind of stay on track with that stuff. Which drug was most difficult to portray the effects of? <laughs> oh my God. Um, I don't know. In a way, it was harder to portray not being on a drug. <laughs> like, like the drug sort of gives you a kind of a really strong um, direction to go in. Do you know what I mean? Like there's like a real kind of parameter there that, you, <laughs> that you've got to work with. Um, I mean, I found it really disturbing and, you know, I think it's really, it's unsettling all that stuff. But it was also, as an actor, it was really fun to plot that out and, and to, you know, investigate what that was. But it's, um, it's very, you know, I mean, it, it's a fun show and, it's, and it was really fun to make, but there was also a lot of really confronting things in it. And there was, for me, with Armand's addiction issues and all that stuff, as much as it was hilarious and fun shitting in a suitcase, <laughs> like doing some of the things that I get to do, it's pretty intense stuff uh, that, he's, that he's going through. So, um, yeah, but I, I mean, yeah, I did in, enjoy the process of working all that stu- on all that stuff and I don't think there was one that was harder than the other. <laughs> Right. What was the most daunting scene? Do you remember being intimidated in the days up to filming one certain scene? Not really. It was really just starting was daunting because I loved the scripts and I loved the character and he goes on such a roller coaster ride or and I, you know, get to go on a, such a roller coaster ride with him. And I wanted to do a really great job, you know? So, like, you're, you're at the beginning, you're like, oh, shit, I hope I can, you know, I, I hope I can do all the things that I want to with this and I hope it goes well. You never know, you know? You just sort of dive in. So, yeah, but I was, I mean, I was equally excited. I think it was just also, it was COVID, so I, 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 I hadn't met with Mike face-to-face ever before. There wasn't a lot of conversation before. We really kind of dove in when we got there. So I remember the first scene that I shot and it was with Jake Lacey and Mike did this thing, I realised afterwards, with with a lot of the actors where in the first scene that we shot, that those of us who hadn't worked with, just tried all sorts of different things. So we did like a gazillion takes and I was like oh fuck am I just am I not getting what he wants I don't know I mean we were having fun and stuff but by the the end I was like I feel like I'm just not getting it and then we came off set and I I looked at Jake and I was like man like I, I mean what was going on there and he was like oh don't worry don't worry that's what he does when like in everyone's first scene you're just like you know just seeing who you are and what you can do and I, I mean or maybe that was just Jake's take on it but it, it kind of threw me for a loop for a second I was like Ugh. <laughs> 
because right. we're, you know, there's so much in the script and it was very clear what the show was in many ways, but we're also still kind of in the beginning, you're trying to find the tone of the character and, and what the show is. So it was, it was exciting, but also like a little scary stepping off the cliff and being like, where are we? Is there a net here to catch us? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you mentioned not getting to meet Mike before you arrived on set. How was it in terms of co-stars? Because you are the nexus of this amazing uh, ensemble cast. Did you get to meet anyone before you arrived to begin filming? No, I hadn't met any of the cast before and we didn't get to, we, we all arrived and went into quarantine. Um, so we didn't get to to meet each other or spend much time at all before we started shooting. Um, some people had a bit of a lag before they started shooting, but I was like right in. Um, but then as we went along, you know, we were all staying in this resort together. So it was kind of like TV camp and we all went down to the beach at the end of, you know, most of us, those of us who were um, still shooting, would go down at sunset every day and swim together. So it, it was this really beautiful bonding experience as we went along it was really it was really great but yeah in the beginning I mean as you said like this character is kind of like a sort of like a, a nexus and it's such an amazing cast and I got to work with all of them because I'm the hotel manager it was so great <laughs> it was really you know I kind of got the coolest job in that way like I get to be with all these cool people and do scenes with them so it was it was awesome <laughs> Wow. And so just to clarify, was there any sort of chemistry read even on Zoom or something with the, the co-stars or no? That's wild. Nope. Nothing. Yeah. And it's, so yeah, it's amazing. Did it kind of help for the character then? Because I guess <clears throat> as the manager, you are meeting a lot of these people for the first time. Yeah, I guess so. I, I never yeah. thought of it like that. But, but you know, again, we're, all, we're shooting all the way out of order. So I think we shot the first scenes when they're all arriving on the last day so you know <laughs> so, so there wasn't like by that stage I knew them all you know but uh but yeah it was an interesting sort of evolution of getting to know each other but we did you know I mean I feel like we were immediately kind of bonded because it was such a unique situation you know it was the pandemic's going on we all got pulled out of our COVID pods and taken to Hawaii, you know, to this beautiful place with these great scripts, with this amazing group of people. So we all were filled with so much joy <laughs> at the beginning. And that was the jumping off point, you know, so that was, it's kind of a great place to start. Right. I mean, it seems like a dream to be trapped on an island with Jennifer Coolidge, especially. <laughs> she seems like she would just be so much fun. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty epic. You couldn't really design a better kind of uh, dreamscape for yourself. Right. Well, <laughs> so Armand plays kind of a different role to each of the different characters, each of the different storylines. He serves different purposes to, I guess, different guests. I'm curious how much of those relationships were already written and established and how much of that was like you getting to set, seeing how well you interacted with certain actors. Did Mike sort of spin off of the chemistry you guys had at all? I mean, not in terms of the script. No, the scripts, Mike wrote those scripts in, I don't know whether someone else has told you this or maybe you already know. A lot of people don't seem to know this and I it's such a great thing to know because it speaks to his genius. He started writing the show in August and we started shooting at the end of September, beginning of October. So, And those scripts were so detailed and amazing and, you know, and so really, like, unless you're Jennifer Coolidge, you didn't really <laughs> want to riff off those scripts, you know, because they're so brilliant. And, I mean, her riffs off anything are so brilliant. Um... Uh, so, you know, that's, <laughs> so that's okay. Uh, plus she also said Mike's lines, but you know, she's, that she brings her own kind of genius to it. Um, so there was, you know, there was, there was definitely things that came out and I mean, you know, to a certain extent, things are on the page and when they come to life, though, then when you see the dynamics of the specific actors that are playing those roles. So you kind of, I think that's sort of what I was saying about the first scene that I had working with Mike, where he's sort of, he's kind of seeing who you are as oh. an actor and all the, all the different sort of colours that you have. So, 
you definitely kind of find your rhythm with the dynamics with the the, the characters when you start working together, particularly when you haven't when you don't have any rehearsal or any kind of table read or anything. <laughs> You're just on the fly, like, okay, where are we? But it's it was a I mean, it's a brilliant group of actors and who turned that turned out to be a lovely group of people. So and we were all up for the challenge and as I said, like full of joy and ready to have a great time. Um, and I especially loved your scenes with Jake Lacey. It's fun to just get to see you guys have this full out feud. Can you talk a little bit about Armand's dynamic there, that relationship? Yeah, they were some of my favorite scenes because the conflict is so clear. Like these characters come into those scenes, they both want kind of an opposite thing. So that, and there's no way that either of them is going to be satisfied at the end. You know, they're not going to get what they want really from each other. So it's just, it's like this perfect sort of acting exercise where one person wants one thing, the other person wants the opposite, and then you just, and go. <laughs> you know? And and Jake and I, I, th- I think Jake is similar to me in some ways where he's just such a great guy and so prepared possibly like me, maybe a little over-prepared. So we came to set, like, really ready to go. <laughs> and as, as soon as, you know, Mike calls action, we were just like, ah! <laughs> like, like at each other. Um, so it was just kind of thrilling to work with an actor where you just, like, just butting heads in such a great way in scenes that are written that way you know like it's just it was it's very satisfying I think um and for me like as that character being able to channel all my frustration at not standing up to the kind of obnoxious dicks that I've come across in my life and being able to just you know pour it all into (laughs) the way I manipulate and treat that character was kind of was very satisfying and probably quite healing for me I think therapeutic (laughs) How cathartic. Oh, my goodness. I can't even imagine how much fun. So you must have been shooting in very early, early mornings, right? If you were there when guests weren't in the hotel, if you were in that main area, you must have been Mm -hmm. shooting crazy hours. Yeah. Was there like a ghost? I guess there must have been a real life Armand at the hotel. There must have been it must have been a sort of meta like experience staying in the real life version of what you're acting out. It was very odd. Yeah, living and working because we couldn't leave that resort for the entire time we were shooting, two, two and a half months, whatever it was. So, yeah, it was very meta, very, very odd, kind of eerie in the beginning when we had the resort to ourselves um, and very, like, confronting in some ways. I remember one day where I was, you know, like, they were, you know, when the, the hotel wasn't open when we first got there, it was just a real kind of skeleton staff. And I didn't see an exact Armand, but there's always, you know, the, the managers and whatever have that kind of like, hi, great to see you, like, you know, turning on the charm kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, there was no sort of Armand clones for sure. But I remember this one day um, where, you know, I put in my laundry and it hadn't come back in a couple of days and I was, like, about to pick up the phone and be like, um, excuse me, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm turning into that guy. <laughs> the dick who's like, where's my laundry? Um, so I think it was probably good for us to uh, be experiencing uh, the, what it is to be in that hotel as we were, you know, playing these people who were caught up in that world. It was it was a very unique um, experience. <laughs> and how did you prepare loved ones for the final episode in your character storyline especially? Did you give them any warning? No. In fact, a lot of people said, why didn't you warn me? <laughs> but I didn't want to give anything away, you know? Right. I feel like that's one of the things about the... I think maybe I did say something vague to my mom about just, like, be prepared. But um, she's pretty awesome. And um, by this point, she's, like, seen a lot of stuff. <laughs> so she's, she, uh, nothing much would shock her, I don't think. But I think she was shocked. <laughs> <laughs> Why wouldn't you be? Your son is, you know, doing (laughs) some things on television that you never see on television. 
but yeah, no, I I thought it was fun and good to not let people in on what was going to be happening to to me. So I got genuine mm. responses. <laughs> I love it. Uh, well, it was so nice to speak to you. Thank you so much for taking the time, especially on the back of all these travels. Um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, really lovely talking to you too. That does it for this week's show. You can find us at VF.com uh, covering our SAG Award predictions and talking about much of what else we talked about on this episode. You can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And David. David Campfield 97. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. You can also sign up to text us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7169. This might be a great time to start sending in some questions as we try to come up with some answers if we can. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs and this week's award for the best wish to send out into the universe about this year's VF Oscar party goes to David Canfield. We have to pray it's not over Zoom. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 